Okay, here we are, the episode we've been uh, talking about all year long. This is our 1965 Spectacular on the George Sanders Show. Um, every year we, we start the year and we decide to kind of focus on one year in film history and watch as many movies as we can um, from that year. Uh, last year we did 1984. And, uh, you know, we're going to give out war- awards later on the show uh, for the, the major categories. Um and we're going to talk about two films in depth, Richard Lester's film Help, starring the Beatles, um, and then the Spaghetti Western, A Pistol for Ringo, from director Ducio Tassari. Um, well, gonna... some, somewhat in depth, I don't know how. Well, we'll see. yeah. yeah. <laughs> how deep he can really go into, into these movies. But... That's true. Um, and I'm just going to come out and say it for our listeners out there. I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, and I, I think you kind of agree with me here, Sean. I think we picked a bad year. Mm. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. There's good stuff in 1965, and we will definitely be highlighting the best of it on this show. Um, but last year, 1984, like I was really, um, I was finding a lot of surprises, stuff that was new to me that um, I wasn't expecting to be great. And um, you know, that episode, I think we we talked a lot about all kinds of different movies. And here, my top five stayed pretty much the same from the beginning of the year till the end of the year. So. Yeah, I think I think there's there's a few reasons for that. I don't know if you want to get into it now or save it for later. But uh, well, we're gonna have a quite a discussion about it later. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get into to, that. I wanted to spoil the party for anybody. You know, anybody that was eagerly anticipating this episode, <laughs> you might want to check your uh, expectations at the door. But there's good stuff. There's absolutely good stuff, including music. Uh, obviously, 1965. Even though we're not baby boomers, uh, 1965, pretty solid year for music. Um, and you're going to be hearing a lot of tunes uh, from that year throughout the show. We started uh, with, obviously, one of your favorites, Sean. I'm sure a film that we'll be discussing later on the show. Uh, Christmas Time is Here from uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. That's right. And if you don't think it counts as a film, I don't care. What do you mean it doesn't count as a film? Why wouldn't it count as a film? Oh, because it was on TV? Yeah. Oh, I got you. It was yeah. a television special. 
I, I think that counts. I'm I'm fine with that. Good. Did your did your wife get, did your wife get her postcard? <laughs> yes, she did. Oh, good. She was very excited that it was written only to her and not me <laughs> or the children. <laughs> Uh, over Christmas break, I was down in California and uh, in Santa Rosa. My father lives in Santa Rosa now, and there's a Charles Schultz Museum. And Sean's wife, as we've mentioned on the show, is a huge Peanuts fan. So uh, mm-hmm. I sent her a postcard from that establishment and uh, yeah. made fun of, made fun of Sean from 700 miles away. So that's always a, a joyous time for me. So. Indeed. <laughs> um, so anyway, we do have a lot to talk about on the show. Um, so let's let's roll with our uh, first film here. We're going to talk about Help, and we're going to play a song from that soundtrack. This is a pick of yours, Sean. Um, which one are we going to do? Uh, we're doing the the George song. This is uh, I Need You. You don't realize how much I need you. Love you all the time. I never leave you. Come on back to me I'm lonely as can be I need you Said you had a thing or two to tell me How was I to know you would upset me I didn't realize As I looked in your eyes You told me Oh yes, you told me You don't want my loving anymore That's when it hurt me I'm feeling like this I just can't go on anymore Please remember how I feel about you I could never really live without you So come on back and see Just what you mean to me I need you But when you told me You don't want my loving anymore That's when it hurt me I'm feeling like this I just can't go on anymore Please remember how I feel about you I could never really live without you So come on back and see Just what you mean to me I need you I need you I need you So in 1964, uh, Beatlemania had infected the world. Uh, there was no antidote to this. We're, we're still suffering 50 years later from uh, the effects of this disease. And uh, there's no help for it. There's no, there's no help. Uh, and uh, part of the whole Beatlemania insanity of that year uh, was Richard Lester's film, one of the most influential music films ever made, A Hard Day's Night, um, which cemented the Beatles legacy in, in a lot of ways, uh, particularly kind of 
giving form to the personalities of the individual Beatles and showing that they're, you know, funny, charismatic um, guys. And uh, obviously the phenomenon didn't stop moving into 1965. Um, and so there was a, a I wouldn't, it's not a sequel, but uh, the, the team of Lester um, and the Beatles teamed up again for a film called Help. Uh, which originally was called Eight Arms to Hold You until like the very last minute when John Lennon said, uh, I have a song called Help, maybe we should throw it into the movie. Um, <laughs> and thank God he did. Um, and Yeah, that would be a bad title. It's a terrible title. We would not be talking about Eight Arms to Hold You. Yeah, it's a terrible title. Um, Help is, is a much better title. Um, Help has a lot of similarities with A Hard Day's Night. Um, it's got the, the Beatles running around uh getting you know goofy antics ensuing around the Beatles um, and then interspersed with performances um, music video performances of them performing songs from the subsequent album uh, tie-in um, and obviously I think we can agree uh, the Beatles are amazing so the songs in this movie are fantastic I don't think we're going to disagree about that um, are we Sean uh, no that <laughs> okay I, I like the Beatles good um but uh but yeah so help is not as well known or as 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 beloved as a hard day's night and um for good reason for very good reason uh this i think the the biggest difference between this movie and that one is the beatles started smoking pot in between (laughs) um and so they were really getting into getting stoned around the time of this movie and so um for me, watching it, you know, I, I'd see this. I had seen this before. You had not, but uh, right. this is this is one I'd seen a couple times uh, in high school when I was also smoking lots of pot, and um, and I enjoyed it back then. But um, I have to say, and this is, might be a refrain for 1965, uh, the humor in this movie uh, really falls flat to me, except for a few exceptions. There, there are some moments that I think are laugh out loud funny because I laughed out loud, um, but this this movie it's a pale imitation of of the lightning in a bottle that a hard day's night was where that movie um really has some wonderful character moments uh with the with the four guys um in addition to the great music like like this movie if this movie didn't have music in it it would be intolerable yeah it it would be unwatchable it would be absolutely unwatchable uh so you had this did you have a similar uh opinion to this uh, yeah, I think, uh, although I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame the pot. Like, I think, I think the best moments in, in help are, are similar to the best moments in a hard day's night. And I imagine that they, uh, were all, uh, created under the influence and best appreciated under the influence. Uh, it's the, it's the little mumbled asides and, and kind of babbling between, the the Beatles, like at at the side of the plot and the margins that that's like barely audible, uh, is all of the good stuff in this movie that isn't music, and it was kind of the same way in in a Hard Day's Night. Like I think the the problem with this movie is is the plot and you know the racism. Yes, that that's that's the bi- that's the biggest problem with this movie, and uh, we can tackle that head on. The, so the plot of Help, if you haven't seen it, and um, is that Ringo has acquired a ring 
uh, we don't ever find out exactly how he. Oh no, a girl sent it to him. That's it, right. A girl uh, gave it to him. Right, a girl gave it to him. Uh, this ring is actually uh, crucial for this uh, Indian cult. Uh, n- nobody in the cult is actually played by real uh, Indian people um, in this movie. Um, they need this to do their human sacrifice, and so they they're going to try and track down Ringo and try and get the ring. Unfortunately, the ring is attached to Ringo's finger; he can't get it off, and so they're going to try and kill Ringo. Um, but it's excruciating, um, cringe-inducing. A lot of the the moments between with this cult um, speaking in this very heightened fake accent and uh, people in dark makeup and stuff like that. Um, it's it's pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah, the the cult. It's a it's the the Kali cult that's also. Uh, in, in operation in, in uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gunga Din. It's uh, apparently a, a popular subject with, uh, with British writers. It's yeah. this uh, Indian human sacrifice cult, which, uh, as far as I know, has no actual historical basis. <laughs> right. It's probably just something that, like, Rudyard Kipling made up as, right. as like, a joke. Um, but, yeah, all of the the slapstick around trying to get the ring off of Ringo's finger. And, you know, they go and see various people. There's like scientists and like government agents and, and all of that is just not funny. Yeah. It's not funny at all. Like the only part in a hard day's night that isn't funny is the Paul's grandfather stuff is, is pretty, um, pretty hard to sit through. But, but yeah, this is like the, the three main, like, antagonists in this movie or groups of antagonists in this movie are just horrible it's just really hard to watch and going back to what we were saying about the Beatles, like i agree what you're saying about the beatles asides are the highlights of the non-musical moments but here there, there aren't as many here um as there are in a hard day's night and the, the the camera doesn't linger with the beatles as much as you would think it would in a film that's ostensibly you know kind of a vanity project for for the group like there there are long stretches where they're kind of just shunted aside for this kind of oh sure these, sure these antics you know um, definitely which and, is unfortunate yeah and there's and just as as filmmaking you know set aside set aside the Beatles or the plot or uh, you know all of that stuff just as a a a constructed piece of cinema it's not nearly as interesting as a hard day's night yeah well exactly and that and uh, you know. Richard Lester directed two movies in 1965, um, this and uh, The Knack and How to Get It, um, which, did you watch that? I did not. I didn't get to that one. It's terrible. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the, uh, of the 25 movies I've seen from 1965, it's my least favorite. Um, it does the same stuff where it's really forced comedy stuff. That movie has a, an interesting element to it where in the final act, there's this kind of there's this rape scene, which is very jarring and very interesting, but it doesn't work in the context of this farcical kind of goofy, you know, mugging, you know, British kind of thing, mid sixties, British thing. Um, and it's weird because hard days night, like I said earlier, is lightning in a bottle. Like it, like I watched that, um, earlier this year as well. And it, it's infectious, you know, it's the music's toe tapping and you're, and all of the scenes with the the Beatles running around, running from the girls, you know, chasing them and all that stuff is just so much fun. Um, and well, those... Lester's other work is, is really strong too. Like this is easily the worst Richard Lester film I've seen. And, and that's, that is including 
Superman three. Uh, yeah, no, I I, I loved uh, the Three Musketeers movies. The Three Musketeers movies, Robin and Marion is is fantastic. Petulia is an amazing bit of uh, late sixties American filmmaking. Uh, but this yeah. this is just I don't know I I far from the Beatles being too high to make this i wonder if lester was yeah or else he was splitting his time between you know maybe this was like an obligation and he was trying to you know do two things at once or something but um it's just yeah it's just poorly conceived on on pretty much every level <laughs> yeah it really is uh, but let's talk about the beatles because you know the 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 um obviously we said the music is fantastic and and the music video stuff that they do in this which is kind of the some of the first proto music video type stuff um that bands were doing back then um a lot of those are are pretty fun in this movie they're not as great as some of the, the iconic ones in hard day's night either but um you know i love the ticket to ride where they're skiing um and doing so horribly um and stuff like that and yeah. you know th- those are fun but um I like I like when they're they're singing "I Need You" in in Stonehenge, and they're right. like wearing their their turtlenecks, and and the Indians are tunneling below them to set off dynamite, and they're surrounded by tanks and stuff. Yeah, and uh, uh, there's a uh, for the uh, you've got your to hide your love away uh, video. You can see kind of Paul kind of like rolling his eyes at at John's uh, uh, Dylan impression, right? <laughs> Which is pretty hilarious. <laughs> Um, that, that I really like, I love that song and I, and I, and I, and I love that scene and the only, and this is indicative of what the problem is is with this movie is that scene could actually be really heartfelt and stuff, um, as he's singing this song. Cause it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an emotional tune. Um, but then it cuts to the, the head of the cult, like popping up out of sewer tunnels and stuff in the middle of it. And you're like, well, that completely spoils the mood of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Um, because you've got, you know, it's the Beatles playing it in their, you know, connected apartments or houses. Um, which is one of the only things I actually remembered about this from when I saw it in high school is I love that the Beatles all had, uh, you know, they all went to a different front door that was, you know, brightly right. colored, different color, and then they walked in, and they shared the house together. But yeah, I know, love that gag. It's uh, that's the gag in uh, in Wheels on Meals too, and it's also right. in uh, the Tina Fey Amy Poehler movie that's out now. Does the same the same gag where the two open different doors to go into the bedroom, and it's a, a connected room. Yeah, um, but that scene could be really great because John's singing that song, and then it cuts to Eleanor Braun, who plays kind of the the woman who escapes from the cult or is, is helping the Beatles get, get away from the cult. And she's sitting there and she's looking all kind of sad and stuff. And it could be an emotional moment in a movie that's full of gags, but unfortunately it's spoiled by Lester's decisions to uh, just keep it all goofy. So um, yeah. which Beatle do you think is the best actor uh, in this film? Ooh, that's tough. I like, uh, I like uh, the adventures of, of Little Paul. I thought that was funny. <laughs> what, what is what is the title card for that? Is it the adventures yes, of Little so, of Paul when like, he is little or something? When he is little, yeah. Uh, uh, I, what George, I like about that is, I, I don't know if this was a conscious decision, but there are three or four moments in the first half hour of this movie that the Beatles end up in various states of undress, um, <laughs> and I'm wondering if that was intentional. Like, there's the scene where the um, they have the, like their clothes the hand, ripped off by yeah, the hand, the hand dryers being yeah. ripping off their clothes, and 
doesn't Ringo like lose his pants at some point? I, yeah, um, and then and then Paul's naked. Um, so I, I find that funny. I think George comes off the strongest here. I don't yeah. know if it's necessarily his acting performance, although he he does get some of the best lines in the film. Yeah, um, the the line my favorite line is, was a uh, was a George line where he's talking about uh, one of the Indians has set a bomb and he says, "Look, a thingy, a fiendish thingy." Right. <laughs> Uh, well, and he also gets to do the cool stuff. He he gets to pull the Zoe Bell and ride on like the hood of a car. I mean, obviously, you know. Yeah. It, it, but uh, yeah, George gets, I think, the best moments in this movie. John doesn't get much to do at all, um, you know, uh, which is kind of surprising. Like, Paul gets to get shrunk. Obviously, Ringo's the uh, the main part of the plot here. Uh, uh, yeah, but- I think I think you see John most in the music. Like, I think this is this is a really John heavy album. Yeah. And it's like it's kind of the last really John heavy one, if I remember my my Beatles history correctly. Well, there's a lot of John on the White album. Yeah, well, that one is you know it's all over the place, but and it's the best. But well, uh, you, you know what's interesting? Agreed. Is, agreed. Uh, talking about later Beatles is the scene of of them in this film when they go they're going to the airport to go to the Bahamas, mm-hmm. uh, and they're all in disguise, and. And at least Ringo, George, and John actually look what like what they look like five years later. Like like John has this like long beard and he's wearing the granny glasses, right. uh, and he he looks like he does in 1969. And uh, George has uh, like a I think he has a beard. Ringo has like this mullet and stuff. And it's weird how they they picked out costumes that actually ended up looking like them in reality well that's Um, the that's the crazy thing about the beatles is that their their lifespan was so compressed there there were you know beatlemania hit the u.s in 1964 and they broke up in 1970 so it's like less than than six years yeah which even even today is is nothing in in the lifespan of a pop star oh it's insane yeah well i mean nowadays bands you know wait five years between albums and stuff you know yeah. the beatles were putting out albums every six months you know dylan was too and the kinks and all those i mean it's crazy and how many of those records i was you know when we were picking music for this show i was going through the albums released in 1965 and it was crazy that like one week help would come out and then two weeks later bringing it all back home and it's like can you imagine <laughs> yeah I mean, those it's... things coming out hot on the heels of one another but yeah. It's crazy. I mean, and also looking at Beatle history, like this came out in the summer, like late summer of 65. And uh, almost a year later, uh, the Beatles play their last concert at Candlestick Park. Like, and then they go off to make Sgt. Pepper and do all of this, you know, experimental stuff. It's crazy how much they compressed into that time. It's yeah. Just... Like by, by the time this this comes out, they've already moved, you know, musically yeah, in, in totally that. different directions. They're already like, rubber you know, soul. doing Rubber Soul and in. Uh, I, w- I will say that the yeah, Revolver the oh god, <laughs> Revolver is so good. Uh, I will say that the 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 racism in this film uh, made me like the Indi- the Beatles uh, Indian period even less than I already did. <laughs> well, it was on this film where George got introduced to the sitar and all that stuff because there's the scene of the band. The, um, you know, the right. they're they're band in the they're thing. in the well they're in the Indian restaurant that doesn't have any Indians in it. Right, and like, and that's the joke is that all of the Indians are English. 
Yeah, which is a weird meta commentary on the movie or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, but that that uh, led to George's lifelong interest in uh, in all that stuff. So you can you can pinpoint it back to this film. <laughs> such, such a shame. <laughs> Poor George. He had so much potential. Oh, George. But he's great. I mean, you know, uh, I need you is one of the best songs on this record. I mean, it's really yeah. it's really solid and. Um, but yeah, yeah. This this is a weird thing. My my wife uh, watched a little bit of of this, and uh, and George is now her favorite of the Beatles. Uh, because whereas of, for because of this movie, or no, or, no, just oh, okay. in in recent years, George has become her favorite. So she watched mm. for for all of the George parts, mm. and uh, but she ha- was always a, a John girl growing up. Interesting. And uh, and in in her her old age, she's. She's, she's moved because on. she's moved on to George, which is which is interesting. I John is still my favorite, but I, th- I think Paul is underrated. Uh, Paul, I hate Paul. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more so for what he did post Beatles um, and and kind of the the kind of cartoon that he's become. Well, sure. Um, and uh, and actually the, the later Beatles stuff, like a lot of his overwrought stuff at the end of the Beatles, uh, Long and Winding Road, and. All that stuff is is kind of gag inducing to me now, but um, uh, yeah, I'm a John guy. I mean, I I'm also a Ringo dude. Like as a drummer, like I've said this before, but Ringo is um, people that talk smack about Ringo have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to drums. He's deceptively simple, um, and and he's totally awesome. And Ringo rules. So I will I will have no bad mouthing about Ringo in my presence. <laughs> That's what I have to say. Um, but unfortunately, you know, Ringo. Um, Ringo is also kind of the star of A Hard Day's Night and uh, and the, the famous scene of Ringo in that movie is where he's kind of what this movie that what Help doesn't have is these kind of individual vignettes of the Beatles like it's got Paul shrinking and stuff but it doesn't spend like a yeah. lot of time with each individual Beatle like it's they're really pushed aside um, and Hard except Day's for Night, Ringo well even Ringo doesn't get that much to do except react to oh, sure. you know, being covered in paint or something like that but in a hard day's night he's got that great scene where he just kind of walks along the the waterfront um, and looks sad um, which is great I mean he was hung over at the time that's the story and people asked him how he did such a great job acting and he said I was just really really hung over that day um, but those are the little moments that I regret um, that this movie doesn't have much of um, so yeah yeah. Uh, I had I had I had to look it up. George was twenty two when this movie came out. Isn't it crazy? Yeah, it's crazy. And we have we have accomplished nothing with our lives. <laughs> That's true. That is absolutely true. I remember I used to have a real chip on my shoulder when I was thinking like um, Gordon Gano wrote like all the songs on the first Violent Femmes album when he was like seventeen. And oh well, they I sound have... like it. Well, but those songs are timeless. They're well, sure. Amazing. Sure, but like, they 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 are definitely for and by a seventeen year old. Well, absolutely. But by the time I was nineteen, I was like, well, I'm never going to achieve anything with my life because look what he did when he was seventeen. You know what I mean? It's true. Uh, it's true. Absolutely true. Mm-hmm. So uh, just keep keep podcasting away, I guess. But <laughs> so yeah, do you have anything else to say about help? No. Okay. Uh, so that's our discussion of help. 
I'm sure it was very, very enlightening. Uh, we're going to listen to some more 1965 music here. Um, and, you know, the 60s was great for girl groups, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, and I am. I love that Phil Spector stuff and, um, you know, Ronettes and all that kind of stuff. But uh, one, of the, one of the most popular acts uh, was the Dixie Cups. Uh, everybody knows Chapel of Love, which is really great. But uh, they recorded kind of off the cuff. They recorded this song, Ico Ico. Um, in the studio that was a song that they grew up singing with their families and stuff and it became kind of an unexpected hit in 1965 and I think it's really charming so we're going to hear a little bit of Ico Ico from the Dixie Cups now My grandma and your grandma were sitting by the fire my grandma told your grandma, I'm gonna set your flag on fire. You're talking about henna, henna, henna. Ico, Ico, Ande. Jagamo, Fino, Anale. Jagamo, Fino, Anale. Look at my king, all dressed in red. Ico, Ico, Ande. I bet you five dollars he'll kill you dead. Jagamo, Fino, Anale. Talking about henna. So this is the part of the show where we talk about 1965 and then uh, hand out a bunch of awards to movies and performances and such from that year. So you started talking in the open about how this was a uh, kind of a disappointing year. Um, Like we should, before we get into like the individual films, we should maybe kind of talk about the year in a broader sense. Sure. So do you, do you have a theory on why you enjoyed this year less than 1984 or 1933? Uh, I have a couple of theories. Um, I, like, it, it kind of depends on maybe the country we're talking about. Like, for example, I, I mentioned in the help thing, I watched a few movies from uh, from Britain, um, including The Knack and How to Get It. Um, and we talked about Darling on the show and stuff. And I just feel, and I wrote about this in my review for, um, I think it was for Knack and How to Get It or um, a later film from the decade um, that's escaping my, oh, Magic Christian. One, one of those where the Britain in the 60s mid 60s is the most foreign culture to me imaginable (laughs) like 
Like I can watch, you know, Russian films from 1914 or something, and I, I connect to them more than I connect to something like The Knack and How to Get It. Um, so that's a problem. Uh, and then another problem we, we, we discussed on, a, on another show was um, the Hollywood stuff. Uh, the big budget stuff was very bloated, you know, Dr. Zhivago's sound of music, stuff like that, um, are, are just overblown, you know? So, so there wasn't a lot of Hollywood product that was really, um, exciting or engaging, uh, for the most part, it was, it was kind of a chore. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I think those two, two kinds of things uh, have, were problematic. Obviously, there's good stuff, and we're going to get to the good stuff. And, you know, auteurs that I've, I revere, you know, made some really amazing movies. But uh, do you have a theory? I mean, did you feel the same way about 1965? Did you, did you feel disappointed by the, by the year? Yeah, um, I, feel, I feel worse about our coverage of this year than in any of the the previous years and maybe it's because I went and solicited suggestions for 1965 movies to watch and ended up with a a watch list of like 90 movies of which I got to maybe 10 right uh so there's like a lot out there that I feel bad that I didn't watch um but also, I think, you know, a lot of those movies are on, like, the really obscure side, like Brazilian documentaries that, you know, nobody outside of Brazil has ever heard of, uh, that kind of thing. Like, all, there, there aren't a lot of the big-name movies that I didn't see, I don't think. Right. Um, and so I think, I think uh, part of the problem is that the Hollywood studio system is just collapsing in on itself in 1965. Like, it's still it's still got like enough uh, draw to, you know, set massive box office records with sound of music and Dr. Zhivago, but those movies aren't that good. And the movies that aren't doing that well are even worse. Like yeah. I, we didn't, we didn't really talk about uh, many of the other ones, but there's, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, the Heroes of Telemark, which we talked about, is is a big Hollywood production that just isn't very good. Uh, the Cincinnati Kid, I think you talked about at one point, is kind of the same thing. I mean, it's not, Yeah. these movies aren't, aren't terrible, but they're just, they're not, you know, they're not anything like the, you know, the Golden Age studio stuff that was being put out in 1933, or even, you know, the the 80s movies of our youth, like the Ghostbusters or Gremlins, that uh, are really high quality. Right. Uh, and in addition to that, I think it's just kind of a, a weird lull. Like, there's not a lot of uh, movies by the, like, it auteurs of the 60s. Like, you know, of the French New Wave people, I think only only Godard and Agnes Varda put out films in 1965. Uh, there's no, there's no Antonioni film. There's a Fellini film, but I didn't, I didn't watch it. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, o- Ozu died two years before. Uh, there's like this changing of the garden in Japanese cinema between, between the Ozu, Mizuguchi, Kurosawa generation and the younger generation of, uh, of the Japanese new wave. Uh, Hong Kong cinema is just about to take off in 1966 but isn't quite there yet in 65 uh so yeah it's just it's just a weird 
year. Yeah, it is. Um, well, let's go back to, to the, you know, you're, you said you had a massive list of 90 something movies and I, and I, I had a watch list of, I think it was about half that size, but, um, and part of my problem was, is I was, my plan was to watch as much as I could of those, but the more I watched, the harder it was to watch another because so much of it was so mediocre. Like not, yeah. not that, you know, one movie would reflect another necessarily, but you know, I'd be like, I'd have a day off and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to watch two 65 movies and they'd both be stuff. I'd be like two and a half stars to, and I'd be like, well, that was a waste. of time. So, uh, but so you and I both agree that there was a lot we didn't get to. So is there a film that stands out from uh, that watch list that you didn't get to that you really hoped you could squeeze in before this show? Uh, yeah, I have a top five. Okay. Uh, uh, there's uh, the, the Fellini film, uh, Juliet of the Spirits. Uh, there are two Satyajit Ray films from 65 that I didn't see, uh, The Holy Man and The Coward. Uh, of the Andy Warhol films, I saw Poor Little Rich Girl, but I didn't see his Clockwork Orange adaptation vinyl. Uh, the Saragossa manuscript is a film that, that sounds really interesting to me. It's this Polish film that has uh, a, a great cult re reputation. I remember there was like a restoration maybe 15 years ago, 16 years ago, that made the rounds. And uh, it sounds very similar to The Forbidden Room. So I thought, you know, that would be definitely something to watch but i didn't mm -hmm. uh and my my number one film that i wish i had gotten to is uh, uh sergey parajanov's uh, shadows of forgotten ancestors uh i've only seen his uh color of pomegranates which is a really weird and uh lovely movie uh biopic about an armenian poet and i think this one is kind of like a romeo and juliet story that sounds really cool as well and I wish that I had seen that. Yeah, that was also one that I had at home for several weeks. And I, you know, I had a stack of 20 DVDs from the library and it was always in contention and I never, I never got to that, um, which, yeah, I'm kind of kicking myself too. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's several that I also did not get to um, that I, I wanted to see. Um, I never got to Polanski's Repulsion. Um, I didn't get to Russ Meyer's Mudhoney. Um, and, but the one that, that, really hurts um is i've never seen Redbeard, and mm -hmm. uh and so i did not get to kurosawa's film uh, the last film he did with tashiro mathini um i have it it's literally like it's in the house with me right now but i just didn't get a chance to get to that one um and that that hurts because um it's one i'm sure i would uh appreciate so Redbeard is uh Redbeard is one of the first dvds i ever owned it was the first criterion dvd i ever got i got it for christmas one year and it took me 10 years before I watched it. <laughs> I actually had seen the first half on video, like is 16, 17, 18 years ago, uh, but had never finished it and had completely forgotten about it. I only watched it because we, we ended up doing a, a They Shot Pictures on, on uh, Kurosawa, and that was one of the films we watched. And uh, it is really good. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It's 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 long. It's it's a difficult watch, but it's uh, it's pretty great. Yeah, I you know I, I may still watch it before you know it's due, but uh, I I do kick myself for that. So um, and then let's before we get to the awards and stuff, is there maybe a, a film that surprised you that uh, like you weren't expecting something? You know, like a lot of these, I'm saying I watched and I was kind of uh, felt a little mediocre on. But is there one that jumped out at you that was a, a happy 
surprise? Yeah, uh, I think I, I, I was a little surprised at how much I've really liked uh, Le Bon Hair, which yeah. uh, which we talked about. Um, yeah. But uh, my number one surprise is probably Tokyo Olympiad, the documentary about the Tokyo Olympi- Olympics uh, directed by by Kan Ichikawa. And I was I was shocked at how modern it is. Like it is, it's a it's a sports documentary, but it, it feels like a sports documentary that has invented everything that sports documentaries have used in the last fifty years. Mm-hmm. Like it, it felt like watching something completely new. Like it's it's it was, it I, of all of the movies that we watched, uh, from nineteen sixty five in two thousand and fifteen, I might I think I had the most fun watching that one. That's another one that I would have liked to have seen. Yeah. It's, it's these three-hour Japanese movies. I guess I have a, a problem with or something. But yeah, um, yeah, that sounds that sounds cool. What what, what about you? Did you have a, a pleasant uh, surprise? Yeah, I mean, I had a few. Uh, the Varda that you mentioned that we talked about on the show was was really good, um, and I enjoyed that a lot. Um, but stuff that's out of my top ten list here, um, I I'm not. I've never seen much kaiju stuff um and uh you know i I put like one godzilla movie on my watch list and someone said oh you need to if you're gonna see that one you need to see uh you know gamera and all these other ones or whatever i only got to one i got to invasion of astro monster um which isn't great but i had a lot of fun with it um and it's got the most adorable uh godzilla like defeats this other monster on a on a on a moon i think he's taken up to a moon or a different planet or something to fight this monster uh and he does this little like irish jig after he defeats him which is like the most adorable thing in the world so i had fun with invasion of astro monster it was one of the more fun like uh b type movie you know fun kind of just campy movies that i i saw um over the course of the year but uh did you see anything that just kind of uh 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 no <laughs> I think uh did you see anything that just kind of blew your mind like like you had no idea that like a nineteen sixty five movie could do this or that no. uh, that just felt like something entirely new no, I did not yeah see i i had that I had that with Tokyo Olympiad, and I really had that with a movie that i I rated fairly low because I didn't know what to do with, and it's uh not reconciled. By uh, Jean-Marie Straub and and Daniel uh, Ouellet, uh, and it is it's like a a movie that there was like there was there's too much in it. I couldn't wrap my head around it on just one viewing, uh, but it's really kind of astounding. It's like this this like snapshot of of Germany in 1965 as it. Uh, is still feeling the echoes of World War II and all of the like the various uh, betrayals uh, that came about with Nazism, but it's never really said by name, and it just skips around in time between the past and the present. Like the present is is, or the past is just as present, and it's a uh, it's a really difficult movie. Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I. I, I liked it, but I need I need to do more work to really understand it. I think. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of that one. So, yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's get to some awards here. Let's talk. You know, get dive a little more in depth into to the best of the best that we did see uh, in the year. So we're gonna give you know basic, kind of the the general five 
uh, awards that normally go around there. So uh, yeah, and this is what we've done in the last the last two years as well. Right. Um, so let's start with best screenplay. Um, it, was there was there a screenplay that you thought was particularly uh, astounding? Nineteen sixty five. I go with uh, with Chimes at Midnight. Damn you! <laughs> uh, which is uh, Orson Welles's adaptation of Shakespeare, and it's uh, he he takes all of like the Falstaff elements from uh, the two parts of Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth, and uh, I think the Merry Wives of Windsor, and edits them together into one story about Falstaff, and uh, it's it's one of the best movies of the year, and it's it's I think it's my favorite Shakespeare adaptation. It's fantastic, and it's also my pick. Uh, so William Shakespeare, Orson Welles, um, and and it and you know sometimes you feel like oh, you know, is it kind of cheating using Shakespeare? But like you said, uh, well, it, this Wells, is, is yeah, it's for the he, adaptation, right? He does such a wonderful job threading all of these. I mean, it feels like it was created this way when you watch the film. Like it, it doesn't feel like it's cut from a bunch of different uh, plays and stuff, and. Uh, yeah, I, w- yeah. I would I would hesitate to say that Wells like improved on Shakespeare, but he made something entirely new out of Shakespeare's elements. Like I'm not giving this award because uh, it has great lines that were written by Shakespeare. Like it, it, right, right. And you know that would be enough to like get it nominated. But it, this is a really strong category this year, like in original screenplay and in an adapted screenplay. Uh, but it's the way that he adapted it. Absolutely, uh, and it's a film that. Uh, I easily could have, I, I had to temper myself in giving out too many awards to Chimes at Midnight, <laughs> uh, but that was one that I couldn't argue with, and, and that's why I, I did pick that as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for, for this film in 2016, because their uh, Criterion is going to be putting it out. I think there, there's, it's going to be like playing in theaters. Uh, it's only been available on like really crappy VHSs and DVDs for a long time, so uh this this will be a good year for Chimes at Midnight. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, so uh, do you have any like runners up you wanna you wanna mention? No, because it'll spoil kind of what's coming later. I think. Okay. I, I'll I'll just be re- see because the the problem with 1965 is uh, the good stuff is going to get talked about a lot here because to me there wasn't that much great stuff so <laughs> okay did well, you want to give a shout out to some some runners up uh uh yeah just uh, you know le bonheur i have as the best uh, original screenplay and also uh, uh charlie brown christmas i think is in that category as well um and peter watkins the war game which uh i don't think i'm going to get to mention any other time but that is a a really uh original film it's yeah. uh, it's like his imagining of what would happen in in england in the event of a nuclear war and it, it it's like a step-by-step procedural of just the disintegration of society in nuclear war that's uh it's shot as a a documentary which uh you know it, watkins is, is really kind of ahead of uh of everyone else in his documentaries in, in the early 1960s with, uh, with the war game here and, uh, and Claude and, and the previous year. And they're both, uh, they're both really terrific films. Yeah. I, and that's I've, a, I've been trying to get you to see Peter I Watkins know, for I know. years. I know. I will. <laughs> Did you ever actually watch the war game? No. 
God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on All to right. uh, best supporting performance. And we're just going to, we're not going to genderize it here. We're just going to go with uh, the best overall supporting performance. Um, and there's some good ones. I mean, there are definitely some, some solid ones. So uh, who are you picking, Sean, for best supporting performance? Uh, the, the best supporting performance of the year is, uh, is Oscar Werner in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and the second best is Claire Bloom in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. <laughs> uh, that is a, a movie, uh, uh, it's a, a Jean Le Carré adaptation with Richard Burton as a, uh, a, a British secret agent who goes undercover into East Germany uh, to try and, and discredit the head of the East German secret police, and Oscar Werner is the the... Uh, German agent who is uh, the unwitting tool of Burton's deception, and he is is really terrific. and uh, And Claire Bloom plays Burton's love interest back in England, that uh, also ends up being a pawn in a scheme that that Burton doesn't know anything about. And it, I think it's it's the best Cold War spy movie there's ever been. And uh, these two performances are are part of the reason why. I think they're both really good. Did you? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's another one I didn't get to, <laughs> which is going to probably be a big refrain on this show. I promise I'll do better next year. We're going to do. We'll we'll talk about that at the end of the yeah. show. We'll talk yeah. about what we're going to do next time. Yeah. At the end of the show. Uh, my pick for best supporting performance, and then there were I got I have some honorable honorable mentions if we want to get to that. Um, but uh, I'm picking Sylvia Pinal. Um, for her portrayal of the devil um, from Boonwell's uh, great short film, Simon of the Desert, um, which uh, she, uh, if you haven't seen the film, uh, there's this religious fanatic, Simon, who is uh, out in the desert on this pillar um, and people go to make pilgrimages to him and ask for advice. And he's, he's very pious and stuff. And, uh, the devil shows up in many forms, uh, a few of them by uh, Sylvia Pinal. Um, and she's just a lot of fun. She shows you why the devil would be so tempting. Uh, she's she's very gorgeous and she's really goofy. And in the end of the movie, uh, I don't know if I sh- should I spoil it. <laughs> it 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 goes it goes where you wouldn't expect it in the final minutes of this movie, and uh, it's a whole lot of fun. And and she is. She is the fun of this movie, so I think she's really fantastic. Yep, she's uh, she's on my list. Yes, she's, she's great. great. <laughs> and I do want to give a shout out. Um, I do have some honorable mentions, uh, particularly uh, Lee Van Cleef, uh, who was our um, person of the week way back on episode two, um, mm-hmm. and and I think you actually mentioned it for uh, for a few dollars more. You said was his best performance, and uh, it's hard to argue with that. So I did want to give a shout out to Lee Van Cleef. Oh, he's the lead in that movie. Well, it's I guess it's true. It's category argue- fraud. Okay, <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, mm-hmm. I I have. A hard time distinguishing lead and supporting, uh, yeah. which may come up a little bit later too in a minute. But he's fantastic. Yeah, I have uh, a couple performances in Major Dundee that I really liked. Uh, I like Jim Hutton and uh, Senta Berger, uh, uh, who plays uh, Jim Hutton is like the uh, the kind of callow young officer that uh, Charlton Heston bosses around, and then Senta Berger is the the woman in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked both of them quite a bit, and uh, and also in. Uh, Making his directorial debut in 1965, his solo directorial debut is uh, King Who, and 
a film called Sons of the Good Earth, which is a World War II film, not not a martial arts movie, and uh, who himself plays a supporting character. He's like a starts off as a, a police officer, and then after the Japanese invade, he's the leader of the resistance. And he's uh, for being a, a short round man, he is uh, surprisingly uh, badass as the resistance leader. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what about the lead performance? What do you got? Uh, lead performance, I got to go with Anna Karina uh, in Jean-Luc Godard's uh, Pierre Le Fou. Uh, see, yeah, now, is that supporting or is that lead? No, she's the lead and she's okay. my pick too. She's supporting in Alphaville. She is supporting in Alphaville. Yeah, That's but she's true. she's the lead in, in Pierre Le Fou. Well, the uh, co-lead. She's fantastic. She's fantastic in anything she's in. I mean, she's fantastic in Alphaville too. I mean, I could have given her supporting for that. Um, but... Uh, I have a feeling we'll talk more about that film coming yeah. up on the show. But uh, her performance uh, is really great. Uh, you know, she she's, you know, one half of this kind of Bonnie and Clyde thing with uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo as they roam through the countryside and, and get into uh, various scrapes and scraps and, uh, you know, people die and stuff. But it's, and, it's and super she's fun. A, and she's a terrorist. And... And she's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the most adorable terrorist you've ever seen. So she, yeah, she gets my thing. Yeah, the uh, this is this is the year of of this is peak Karina. Yeah, like she uh, had kind of dominated the early nineteen sixties, and and in in this year, she is at the she's the best. No, I don't no know. contest. Yeah, yeah, no contest. So. Um, all right. And well, any I, other any other lead performances of, of interest for you? Uh, yeah, uh, obviously um, Orson Welles uh, yeah. in Chimes at Midnight. Uh, I, I was, I mean, I think about until about fifteen minutes before we started recording, I was going with Welles. But like I said, I had to I had to parcel out some awards to other movies because <laughs> uh, Welles. <laughs> I mean, Welles as Falstaff. It's like the role he was born. To, I mean, he's so good. He's mm-hmm. so good in that movie. Uh, uh, I love Julietta Messina uh, in Julietta the Spirits, and that's a film that um, I I was hoping to rewatch. I haven't seen it in f- over fifteen years, and I saw it once in a theater in San Francisco, um, and had a pretty amazing experience with it. Um, but I don't remember it that well. But she's always good, and I remember her being good in that movie. So um, she gets. Uh, a shout out for me as well. What about you? Uh, I had a really strong best actor category this year. Uh, kind of the people we already mentioned, or uh, Orson Welles, Lee Van Cleef, um, Jean-Paul Belmondo and Pierre Lafoe and, and uh, Toshiro Mifuni and Redbeard are really great. And, uh, and Omar Sharif in Dr. Zhivago. Oh yeah. is a yeah. performance I really liked. I, yeah. I think he's, he's very good there. Uh, best actress. Uh, I had a really hard time coming up with five. Uh, really, it's just Anna Karina and and Catherine Deneuve in Repulsion, and that's pretty much it. As an aside, yeah. we're currently you and I have both uh, been asked to to submit uh, 2015 movie stuff uh, mm-hmm. for this kind of Seattle critics poll thing. Yeah, and I'm having the exact opposite issue with yeah. that. My, my the ladies in 2015 are freaking killing it, like. I, I filled out supporting and lead 
with my five nominees in like a heartbeat. And I am pulling out my hair trying to find five male performances that are even close to being as great as any of those 10 performances uh, from women. This yeah, year. that that has been a trend in recent years, I think. It's, uh, it's like this like side project I've been like doing nominations and, and awards, like fake awards for a whole bunch of years. Uh, going backwards through time and it's kind of weird to see like trends like in uh, for a certain period of time there'll be like a ton of really good actor performances and not very many actress or like really good original screenplays and terrible adapted screenplays and it kind of like goes in cycles but yeah the the actor categories this year are Oh, it's it's bleak. It's, it's deserted. I mean, yeah. I I put Jafar Panahi as one of my top five actors of 2015. Oh, I I will do that. He's I actually think that's that's totally legitimate. He's I know it's really totally good. legitimate. I know he's totally great. But it's yeah. it that's a curious decision when you you know when you when you look yeah. at it in a way. Um, okay, yeah. so that brings us along to best director. Okay. Um, and this is another one that you know it's kind of too. Actually, it's a few. It's a few people duking it out uh, at the top spot there. But uh, wh- uh, what is your pick for best director? Uh, Jean-Luc Godard for I Pierre Lafo. I agree. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it's I, it's my favorite of his films. It's one of my, my favorite movies. I, I feel like we've talked about it on the show before. I don't probably. know. Is it is it in like our, our sight and sound list? It probably is. It uh, probably is. Um, yeah, I... I'm I'm getting closer and closer to bumping this up to my number one too, especially on the on the rewatch, you know. Um, and and this movie, I think somebody on Letterboxd said something uh, very astute, like they were describing the three kinds of Godards that there are. You know, there's the the ultimate cinema lover. You know, there's the um, you know the Maoist or you know uh, the you know the revolutionary or whatever and then there's kind of the goofball or something or something like that it's, yeah. it's it's like throwing them into three camps and and saying that this movie in particular is the one that kind of gives service to all three of those in equal measure to where it's really great you know what I mean some of his other you know yeah. like you know a few years later he makes um weekend which goes a little too into one to territory or something like that but here it's it's great. He's just yeah, spinning like, so many it's, plates. And... It's the fullest expression of, of Jean-Luc Godard. Yeah, it really is. So he, he gets my vote, too. Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming that that spoils your best picture pick, then. Yeah, but let's <laughs> let's uh, let's do a countdown. We'll do uh, uh, 10 through 6. Yeah, we'll do 10 through 6. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll start. I have uh, number 10, uh, Simon of the Desert by, by Luis Buñuel. Uh, number nine is for a few dollars more, uh, Sergio Leone. Eight is a Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, seven is Major Dundee, and then six Tokyo Olympiad. Interesting. Uh, my number ten is a Charlie Brown Christmas. My number nine is Yo Yo, uh, the uh, film from Pierre Etay. Uh, number eight is Le Bonheur from Agnes Varda. Number seven, Russ Meyer's Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, and number six is Godard's Alphaville. Right on. Uh, what's your number five? My number five is Simon of the Desert, uh, which was a um, it's the only film in the top five um, that I saw for the first time this year. Um, and I really like that movie. I really got on board with that. And, you know, I've seen my fair share of uh, Boonwell's stuff and I appreciate it. But sometimes it's a little bit much. <laughs> um, but I think this one is a really great, <coughs> excuse me, pure expression. Like we were saying with uh, the Godard 
where it kind of captures everything in, 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 in its purest form. And I think being a short, it's only about 45 minutes long, really works in its favor. Um, and I think it's a lot of fun and uh, it goes in really great directions. So that's my number five. Yeah, uh, my number five is, is Redbeard, uh, the Akira Kurosawa film. With uh, it's a very strange film from Kurosawa. It's not like any of his other ones. It's it's very long. It's about a uh, a young doctor who begins an apprenticeship. Uh, so sometime I think in the nineteenth century, late nineteenth century, and he begins an apprenticeship with with Toshiro Mifune, who's this kind of gruff older doctor with a red beard. Uh, and and Mifuni works a lot with with kind of the the poor of of the community and and uh through various episodes he kind of instills this this humanistic ideal of of altruism of what a, a doctor is supposed to do uh for a community while at the same time also being a a complete uh uh badass like at one point, uh, the uh, a patient or something is threatened by like a gang of uh, of hoodlums, and uh, Mifune, using his uh, anatomical knowledge, like breaks all of their limbs, and it's a really impressive fight scene. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a very it's a very strange, very moving, very involving film that is difficult to watch at times, but uh, it's one of Kurosawa's best, I think. And I'm kicking myself. Yeah. <laughs> well, my number four is uh, is a film that you didn't see, and that's uh, the Fellini film *Juliet of the Spirits* uh, that I mentioned uh, a minute ago. Um, and like I said, it's been a long, long time. I have great impressions of it. Um, I it was a very unique cinema going experience for me um, that did stick with me for a long time. Uh, Juliet uh, Julietta Messina, who is uh, Fellini's wife and uh, his muse, uh, who also starred in two of his most beloved films, uh, La Strada and uh, Knights of Kiberia. Um, she's in this one and she's um, she's she's a middle aged woman whose husband is cheating on her. Um, and she she's visited by all of these spirits. There's a lot of mysticism going on in the film and uh, it's very colorful. Um, one of the things I was going to say about help, if I didn't say it when we were talking about it, is I do love that popping mid sixties, you know, color palette that you get a lot, um, from films of this period. And, um, obviously the Godard is, is another one where we get that. Um, but this film is very gorgeous to look at, very colorful. And there's some really interesting Fellini kind of dreamscape stuff going on in it. Right on. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I, I've I've never watched it, and I think it's because like that bloviating guy in the line at Annie Hall <laughs> talked about it, like he didn't like it. So I've always just assumed it was you know indulgent. Well, like I said, I saw it. Uh, I was maybe eighteen, so who knows if the, if it holds up as well as I th I thought it did. I also didn't see it sober, so that's another thing. But that's another story for another time. So, uh, uh, but I love Julieta Messina. Uh, she's one of my favorite performers of all time. Um, yeah. and she's, she's always great. So she really is. Uh, my, my number four is, is the war game, which I guess I already talked about. Yes, you did. Uh, yeah. so yeah, and 2016 is going to be the year you watch La Commune Paris, eighteen seventy. Okay. All right. We'll I don't, I don't know how I'm going to bring that about, but 
<laughs> you 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 hey, you told you know me what? you told me three and a half years ago that you would watch it if I watched some other movie, and I watched that movie. Eraserhead. Eraserhead. Uh, well, hey, I'm gonna see Out One in like two weeks, and that's yeah. thirteen and a half hours long. So, mm-hmm. La Commune after that will be uh, a, a walk in the park. So, yeah, it'll happen. Okay. Um, number so three. Num- number three. Uh, my number three pick is for a few dollars more, Sergio Leone's Western uh, with Clint Eastwood and the aforementioned Lee Van Cleef. Uh, that's a film that uh, I actually didn't get around to until like a couple of years ago. Um, I'd seen uh, A Fistful of Dollars and I'd seen uh, The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, but I hadn't seen this one. And then I've actually seen this one a bunch of times now because I ran it at the library for a screening and stuff. And it's a great Gosh, it's a great movie, and the and the the way those two characters play off of each other, you know, uh, Lee Van Cleef playing like the older kind of bounty hunter guy to you know Eastwood's very steely uh, macho dude, um, and the way that they have to you know kind of put aside their differences to to come together uh, for a common cause is really great, um, and then the you know you can't beat a Leone western for you know outsized villainy. Um, <laughs> and this is this is one of the the better examples of that, um, including a supporting turn from uh, Klaus Kinski, which is uh, always fun to see. He only gets like one or two scenes, but uh, it's great. Yeah, as the hunchback. The hunchback. Um, <laughs> so it's great. There's so many iconic moments. Uh, probably the most iconic is the uh, shooting of the two hats, where there there's kind of a pissing contest between Eastwood and, and Lee Van Cleef. Uh, in, in the dusty streets of the town where they're shooting each other's hats uh, on the ground, which I think is really cool. So it's a great movie. Yeah, this is the one of the Leone films that tends to get kind of overlooked um, because uh, the Fistful of Dollars came first and it's the whole, you know, Yojimbo remake and it's, it's so focused on Clint Eastwood and then Good and the Man, the Ugly and Once Upon a Time in the West are so big and so epic and have, you know, so many great moments in them. And for a few dollars more is, is it's kind of a, you know, it, it's a smaller story. It's more focused on Lee Van Cleef. Uh, it's got a lot of the same kind of ideas as Once Upon a Time in the West, but just in a slightly, you know, more subdued version. Not that Leone ever did anything <laughs> subdued. But you know, it just it just kind of gets lost. But it's it's a really it's a really great film, and it, and it's uh, Van Cleef's performance, I think, that that makes it Solidifies so it. affecting because he's so he's so cool and so soulful, and so in in contrast to just kind of the the emotionless stoicism of Eastwood or the the uh, I can't remember the guy who plays the villain, but his just kind of you know overwrought right. performance. Just- chewing the scenery and stuff and and, yeah. and i think we mentioned it when we talked about it on the show um when he was the person of the week but i mean that movie single-handedly kind of revived his career and he was yeah. able to you know make a bunch of spaghetti westerns um among other things um in the late 60s um thanks to his performance in that movie and it's it's fantastic so yeah um, and also he looks exactly like kobe bryant <laughs> that's right uh your number three uh, my number three is is Le Bonheur, the Agnes Varda film, which we did a whole episode about, so I don't really need to talk about it anymore, I don't think. It's just, it's really, it's lovely and in a in a just a kind of viciously wicked kind of way. I, I like it a lot. 
Yeah, it's really good. It's really, really good. Um, it's one that's definitely stuck with me since we saw it, and uh, something I'd like to revisit later on down the line. Yeah, I think of. I think it's. Uh, it's not my favorite of the movies we watched this year for the George Sanders show that I've never seen before, but I think it's number two. Linda, Linda, Linda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of number two, my number two is. What do you think? Uh, Pierre Lefou. Yeah, that's Lefou. right. <laughs> uh, it is the Godard uh, Pierre Lefou. 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 Uh, I keep I keep saying it wrong because at some point in a French class I I learned it incorrectly. Ah, uh, well, I just <laughs> I, Pierre Lefou. Yeah. So I take your lead, and that's how I go with it. So um, it's fantastic. It's it's the one in my top ten that uh, I rewatched uh, specifically for this. Uh, and I had just an absolute blast with it. Uh, Samuel Fuller shows up for half a minute. Uh, once again, the colors are great. There's the, in that party scene with Samuel Fuller, there's, you know, uh, the greens and the reds and the blues and, um, and it builds to, it, it goes on these tangents that are so fascinating and could be, you know, any other director would make, uh, their entire movie about one of the minor tangents in this film. Uh, but Godard manages to just throw everything in, including the kitchen sink. And, and it builds to this absolutely perfect finale. That's just so, so deliriously wicked and funny. Um, and it's great. And I'm sure we'll talk about it in just a second. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's my number one, obviously yeah. it's, yeah. it's just, it's one of my favorite movies and, and it has been, since I first saw it. Well, let me guess what your number two is. Yeah, my number two is your number one. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's uh, Chimes at Midnight. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, so good. It's... it's so good. And I've only seen it once. Like, here's that's the thing is you and I saw it. I think it. I've only seen it twice. Yeah, uh, we, we saw it um, together at the Northwest Film Forum in Seattle. They ran it on 16 millimeter, um, gosh, like seven or eight years ago. And... I don't think I went to that. You didn't go to that? I don't think so. Oh, really? You weren't there for that? Oh, man. Mm. I thought you were there. Maybe I went to someone else. Mm. Um, I think I've only but, ever seen it on video. Oh, really? It yeah. was fantastic. And it's and once again, like Juliet of the Spirits and, and a lot of these other movies um, that, that are the ones I had seen before, it's stuck with... There's so many moments in that movie that have stuck with me. Particularly, you know, there's... Great scene, and this is why it's such a great movie. That, like you know, we were talking about the reliance on on Shakespeare or lack thereof or whatever about the movie. But the moments that really stick with me in this movie are more visual. Like there's so many great moments where, like Orson Welles, like in the battle, like running <laughs> hither oh, and yeah. yon, like in the middle of this just chaotic battle scene. Um, and, and oh god, there's just so much. And his performance is over outsized performance as Falstaff. Um, is just one of the greatest joys uh, in cinema. So, yeah, it's it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I, I really can't wait to watch it in 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 a proper version. It'll be great. Yeah, I know yeah. it's going to be really super fun. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the movies I, I've talked about this before. When I first moved to Seattle, like the first thing I did was go to Scarecrow and rent like an armful of of videotapes and chimes at midnight was one of the videotapes that i rented on that first time there because it was a movie i'd been looking for for so long that i had heard about i'd read uh books on orson wells but of course you know i couldn't find it in in my hometown but scarecrow had it and that was it was like a number one priority for me yeah and yeah. uh 
yeah, it's yeah. it's so good. And yeah, I, 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 it is. Is it your favorite Orson Welles movie? <sighs> you know, I'd have to bite my tongue until I see it again. But I mean, Orson Welles is one of those directors where you know it's kind of the last movie you saw is your favorite sometimes. Right. You know what I mean? Like um, like a Hitchcock or somebody like that. Um, but yeah, it's great. And yeah. so is Godard. Godard's great. They're Every, both great. Everything's great. <laughs> everything's great. 1965 uh, was great. Like I think I think this is also <laughs> this is also part of the problem is that is that uh, the really great films from the year like the two like un, undoubted masterpieces that we both agree on are films that we we know very well right before before starting this so yeah i don't know i mean there weren't there weren't a lot of discoveries like like uh some of the ones i watched uh uh for this like uh like le bonheur like tokyo olympiad uh major dundee um why i was really happy to find uh andy warhol's poor little rich girl is another one and then you know, there's there's other stuff. Redline Seven Thousand we talked about on the show. I like more than you. Uh, there's a Seijo Suzuki movie that's pretty good. Uh, uh, Kihachi Okamoto films, pretty good. Uh, yeah, but nothing coming to the the heights of of these these yeah favorites. No, nothing other than like the the ones that that I mentioned in my top ten. Right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's 1965. Uh, we are going to, uh, next year, um, we always do, you know, we always tie it in with the year in question. So it's got to, it's got to end in a six. So, right. <laughs> so we did decide uh, next year, we are going to do 1946, which I think is going to be very interesting, uh, you know, post-war uh, stuff going on there. And I think it's going to be very, very exciting. And there's, a, and there's a number of films from that year that I'm, e- I've been eager to watch that I haven't seen yet. And, uh, It'll be a good excuse for me to do that. Yeah, it's uh, it's a year that I've seen. I think I've seen a lot of like the really big movies, so I'm going to solicit suggestions earlier, so I can uh, get an earlier start on the the more obscure stuff. Right, and we'll and th- we'll do what we did th- like we did this year, where you know, every five shows or so, we'll probably do a show that's dedicated to at least one movie from that year, you know, this year we did several. Um, yeah. Well, like thread it in wherever, wherever we can. Right. We're, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so anyway, we're going to take a break uh, before we get into our discussion for a pistol for Ringo. Um, so we're going to hear some more great music from 1965. Uh, and this is from local boys, uh, the Sonics. Uh, they're from Tacoma, Washington. Uh, that's right. Shout out <laughs> to Tacoma. Uh, and they're one of the just great, great rock bands uh, garage bands from from the mid 60s um one of the greatest just production styles alone um and and you can just oh, i just love it it's all warm and fuzzy uh so this is their classic song psycho um off of their first album here come the sonics or here uh, are the sonics sorry i said here come the sonics it's here are the sonics
All right, so A Pistol for Ringo is about a, uh, a gunfighter who's in jail when a gang of robbers rob a bank, and then the sheriff lets him out to go and infiltrate the gang in exchange for like a cut of their profits. And the gunfighter is named Ringo, or also Angel Face, and he is young, and he is blonde and tall, and he looks uh, kind of like Robert Redford. <laughs> and he's he's very smooth and very cocky and uh uh he gets his way into the gang and uh sets them up to get caught and it is generic in in every good and bad sense of the word like it is it is the epitome of the spaghetti western which had just kind of caught on the previous year after the success of uh, a fistful of dollars and this was kind of one of the the first films to cash in on that and started a whole series of of Ringo films. Uh, it's uh, it's written and directed by by Duccio Tesari. Uh, this is the first film I've seen from his, but uh, as he he uh, co-wrote Sergio Leone's The Colossus of Rhodes, which was the film Leone made before Fistful of Dollars. That is like a uh, like a, a sword and sandal type film that is not very good at all. Uh, yeah, I like this film. Like it's it's really likable. It's it's very light. It's fun, but it doesn't have kind of the operatic depth of the Leone films. No, and I and I don't think that's a bad thing. Like I think that's totally fine. I mean, yeah. obviously, yeah, that maybe that's what's keeping it from you know cracking my top 10 uh for you know 1965 or something like that and um, yeah it's obviously not on par with those just amazing leone films um that you you know like um uh, once upon a time in the west or something like that but this is so much fun like yeah. this movie is so much fun um and it's got a lot of the same you know it's got a score from Ennio morricone uh who is always on point like um he does his own version of uh does he do his own version of Silent Night in this? At yeah. One point? Uh, he does that. He does these little riffing kind of things. And he does this uh, piece of music that really reminds me of, you know, on uh, Batman, the TV show, which was started like in 66, I think, or something. Sure. The, uh, the sound when they would go from like Commissioner Gordon's office back to the Batcave and it'd be like, or something like that. Right, like right. there's a sound with like that that happens throughout this movie that just put a smile on my face every time it came up. Um but yeah, this is a super fun movie, and um, and I think you know, like you said, you said it, um, it it kind of it kind of falls into these conventions and stuff. But I actually think the character of Ringo is really unique. Um, he so he's played by Giuliano Gemma Gemma. Is I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce it. But Giuliano Gemma. Yeah, uh, but he goes. He's he's credited as Montgomery Wood, which, <laughs> which is the best name ever. <laughs> so good. Uh, I wish I was named Montgomery Wood. But what's so great about the character is, um, and this is a thing we could talk about at length about spaghetti westerns is is the iconic characters that you get. But his character is, in my review of it, was just unflappable. Like yeah. the guy, he goes into the most dangerous situations. He's got a gun to his head. And he's controlling everything the whole time. And he's just like, you know, you don't want to kill me now because I know the plan that the sheriff's going to, you know, all these different things. Um, and I just I got such a kick out of how unfazed he was by the increasingly desperate 
situations his his character was thrown into. He's super fun loving, um, and and it's a really interesting um, character compared to like your, for example, like the man with no name that Clint Eastwood would, would role play, um, or someone like Django, um, which you know to speak of another kind of uh, spaghetti western cottage industry um, that you know that film spawned god i think like 50 you know sequels uh of various quality and stuff but the character in that is is very quiet reserved um he's carrying around his own coffin um you know yeah he he very much feels like a like a throwback like not like one of these modern anti-heroes that's all like dark and brooding and stoic and and really really violent and He's not. He's not that at all. He feels like he. It's almost like a like a Gene Autry character thrown into a, a spaghetti western world. Like it's, it's like Someone... it's, it's like John Wayne from his like 1930s serials before he was a star in a in a Sam Peckinpah movie. <laughs> right, right. Which is such an interesting. There's a, such an interesting push and pull with that. You yeah. Know? Um, which is 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 really fun, um, and. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this about about spaghetti western because this is a is this a very common occurrence where it's an international cast. Yeah. Um, in this thing, um, you know, the director and the star are Italian, but a lot of the other characters are played by Spaniards. Um, the film was shot in Spain. Shot film was shot in Spain, and so there's all of these. So basically, the movie is dubbed, um, and and no matter which language you would have seen this movie in it would have been dubbed and you and I both saw English. Um, and it's always a little bit of an adjustment for me going into these movies where it's, you know, the mouth movement isn't syncing up correctly. And the, the vocal performances are very outsized. Um, do you have a problem? Do you find a problem with that when you, when you watch these movies or, or do you just roll with it? Do you have a good time? Yeah. Uh, it's weird. It's like a double standard. Like I refuse to watch Hong Kong movies that are dubbed, but I I don't really have a problem with with Italian movies from the same era. Uh, and I partially I think it's because it's because of of the nature of like the production here. Like they were they were made to be badly dubbed for export to English speaking markets. And mm-hmm. uh, it's like. Uh, we, I think we talked about it with one point, uh, uh, Werner Herzog's Nosferatu. There's a German version and a French version. And in the German version, Klaus Kinski speaks German and Isabella Johnny is dubbed. And in the French version, Isabella Johnny speaks French and Klaus Kinski is dubbed. So no matter which way you go, one of the two main actors is not having their real voice. So there's like, there's no like true way to watch it. Whereas with Chinese films, they're either Mandarin language or Cantonese and you dub them into English and that is not how they were intended to be right. seen. Right. Uh, so I, I allow it for <laughs> a movie like this. You give it a pass. I give uh, it, I give it a pass. Like it did. It's uh, you know, all, all things being equal, I would prefer everyone speak the language that they are speaking on the screen. And that's what the soundtrack is, but there is no such soundtrack for, the spaghetti westerns that I've seen, which, which to be fair is only the Leone films and this one. I haven't seen any of the others. Oh yeah. I, I've actually uh, started branching out and seeing a few of the others and, and there's some really good stuff out there. Uh, you know, I haven't seen anything that's come, you know, once again, close to one of the great Leone films, but um, 
I saw Death Rides a Horse, which is another Lee Van Cleef one, which is a lot of fun. Uh, speaking of Batman and Robin, that one really see- felt like a, a version of Batman and Robin uh, in, in the West. That was a lot of fun. And uh, the aforementioned uh, Django, which is also really interesting and a very different, um, very different mood to that one. That one's a lot more bleak and uh you know, just kind of oppressive, um, this Sergio Corbucci film. Um, so I I haven't seen any of Corbucci's stuff. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's very, it's very interesting, but yeah, this one is definitely the most fun of the ones that I've seen. And, and that goes down the line, you know, Ringo's great. Um, but there's also, you know, the outsized villain, which is Sancho, I believe. Yeah. Um, I mean, (laughs) he's got these adorable little, like, uh, He's got this uh, this adorable haircut, and he's this big, burly guy, and he's always speaking with this thick, you know, really thick, exaggerated accent and stuff. And at least in the English dub. In the English dub, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, my favorite little plotline is the uh, the guy who owns the house that the bandits take over. Like the the bandits steal all this money, and then they go and they they like hole up in this in this ranch that's in this valley, and they're surrounded. And uh, it's like there's like a hostage standoff with the the uh, the posse from the town, and the the owner of the ranch uh, is like is this really smooth old man who starts romancing the one girl in in the bandit gang, and she totally falls for him. <laughs> she totally does. It's a very interesting. It's interesting on a lot of levels um, because his character. I don't like his character like yeah. at all, you know, like he, he plays this play, not playboy, but he's very cultured. You know, he's always yeah. talking about where he got this champagne. And did yeah. you know that in Boston that this happens? And I'm like, God, you stuffed shirt kind of guy, but it's a really interesting. It's a, it's a, it's an act that he's putting on to appeal to the, the, uh, the woman in order to, you know, so that she will help him and his daughter survive. Well, a little bit, but I mean, he also, he is able to play that character because he does, he is a rich, you know, guy that owns a big parcel of land and they sure. are going to move to Boston as, as we hear at the beginning of the film and stuff. So, um, but yeah, it is very interesting to see how Dolores, I think Dolores is the, uh, yeah. the, the woman in the gang, um, uh, how she, she she totally falls for him and and um there's this weird kind of love affair going on on the outs the outskirts of this adventure story which is very interesting yeah it's it's a really fascinating story and actually uh you you talk about the champagne uh, i actually looked it up and he says it's a it's a dom perignon and it's a an excellent vintage but uh dom perignon didn't start making one until 1921 like as a company, a, a label, and they didn't start selling them until 1936. So the first vintage is 1921. Ah. Although the actual monk Dom Perignon, who like came up with champagne, lived in like the 1700s. But the actual he couldn't have bought Dom Perignon wine in the 1800s when this film was set. All right. Well, I'm docking it a full star. Yeah. I mean, that really just <laughs> the, that takes me out of the movie. You yeah. know. um another thing that's great about uh the character of Ringo is um how he he manages to go into a situation he's kind of like Doctor Who in a way where he goes into a situation without a gun I mean Mm -hmm. we see him in the beginning and he's got a gun and he shoots these guys uh just 
point blank he kills them uh and he has like no remorse about it whatsoever um but like uh until the final shootout he's kind of gunless you know he's got a knife and he kind of uses his wits to to save him in these kind of uh action scenes um which is a whole lot of fun instead of just having kind of the same shootout over and over again he's um he's using the the locations around him for his own uh his gain. Yeah, there's a big fist fight with a, a conveniently collapsing wall, and right. <laughs> yeah, there's an axe. And, there's good and Yeah, switchblades and all these kinds of things and dynamite. Yeah, I think I think it's clever how it like comes full circle and and like the the whole movie has been about you know Ringo finding himself a pistol. Yeah, it's literally. I that was my, that was my favorite part. Is I was like, oh my god, the title actually is the plot point of the movie. Is that in the end. He needs a pistol. Like, get yep. this guy a gun. <laughs> you know? um, so yeah, it's super fun. I, I'm yeah. I'm interested to see. I don't know much about these Ringo movies at all. If uh, if you know later films in the series are equally uh, as goofy and fun, but uh, I would definitely watch another Ringo movie um, on a lazy Saturday or something. Uh, did you Did you have a? I totally would as well. Did you have a favorite line? Oh my gosh, a favorite line. Um, there's there's a, a line where I'm not gonna be able to think of exactly what it is, but where Sancho I think it's after Sean, Sancho gets shot, and he's uh, they're they're making they've made their escape from the town, and um, and he's got the satchel of money, and um, one of his minions says, "Give me the money, you know. You always taught me that we, you know, we never." St- stick around for the wounded like we just take off and save ourselves or whatever and then Sancho says in his really big burly voice he says you learned too much from me and then he shoots the guy in the head <laughs> I thought that was pretty great uh my my favorite is the uh the, the little boy who like hangs around whose name is Chico, Chico? which Chico. means which means little boy that's right uh uh when the bandits first arrive at the ranch he sees them coming and says Oh boy, some people to spend Christmas with us. <laughs> yeah, that's another element I love about this movie is is it's a secret Christmas movie. Yeah, like it's so great. Like I, perfect time of the year to watch this. Um, you know, there's a moment where Ringo even uses the Christmas tree to his advantage in a fight scene. Yeah, so, a few uh, times because they put fireworks in the Christmas tree. Right. Because so, he doesn't have a pistol, so he uses the fireworks. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great. Good stuff. This, yeah. Was, this was a very fun movie. I enjoyed this. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, you know, we were talking about our ranked list. This is actually my number 12 film of 1965. So it's wow. it was just peeking in. So it was, it was a whole lot of fun. So. I, I have it at 26, right ahead of Planet, Planet of the Vampires. Oh, this is light years ahead of Planet of the Vampires. Yeah. Me, I think it, it it has a lot of the same the same strengths, but but Planet of the Vampire this one is much more fun and much more interesting. But uh, I just I love what what Mario Bava does with the sets in Planet of the Vampire so much that yeah uh, yeah. yeah yeah and uh, and I you know the music in Help is enough to to rank that movie just slightly ahead of of them. Yeah, because see, we kind we kind of we kind of underplayed it because all of the rest of the stuff is so bad, but the music and help is so good. The uh, yeah, I mean, the Beatles are constantly. I'm constantly astounded that the Beatles existed. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I really am, um, uh, and I'm also 
confounded that Bob Dylan uh, <laughs> exists and still exists. Um, and obviously it wouldn't be a 1965 show without hearing some Bob Dylan. Um, and this is your selection, right, John? Yeah, the 1965 Bob Dylan put out uh, uh, my favorite of his albums, uh, Bringing It All Back Home. And uh, Bob Dylan is my favorite musician. So this is my favorite song off my favorite album by my favorite musician. And this is Love Minus Zero, No Limit. My love, she speaks like silence. Without ideals of violence She doesn't have to say she's faithful If she's true like ice, like fire People carry roses And make promises by the hours My love, she laughs like the flowers Valentine's can't buy her in the dime stores and bus stations People talk of situations Read books, repeat quotations Draw conclusions on the wall Some speak of the future My love, she speaks softly She knows there's no success or failure and that failure's no success at all The cloak and dagger dangles Madams light the candles In ceremonies of the horsemen Even the pawn must hold a grudge Statues made of matchsticks Crumble into one another my love winks, she does not bother She knows too much to argue or to judge The bridge at midnight trembles the country doctor rambles Bankers' nieces seek perfection Expecting all the gifts that wise men bring The wind howls like a hammer The night blows raining My love, she's like some raven At my window with a broken wing Okay, uh, so uh, actually, before before we get to the closing announcements here, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, but that that Bob Dylan song that we just heard was that not the song that you and your uh, your wife danced to at your wedding? It it certainly was. Wow, <laughs> that, wow. That, that is our song. <laughs> I'm sure she was pushing for a peanut song, but you you prevailed. We actually, as we left the aisle at the end of the ceremony itself. We, we walked down to uh, Linus and Lucy instead of <laughs> the wedding march. Oh, man. I'm so angry I was not invited to your wedding. 
Well, the, I didn't know you for two or three years after that. So <laughs> I'm still angry. Yep. Um, so next time on the show, um, we're going to uh, talk about the tying in. Uh, one of the big cinematic events of 2016 is going to happen at the beginning of the year. Um, I think this has actually played a few other cities already, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, as, as usual, the the event of 2016 in Seattle was the event of 2015 in New York. <laughs> right. Um, but at the, uh, at the Uptown in Seattle, uh, there's going to be uh, archival showing of Jacques Rivette's Out One, which uh, I mentioned earlier in the show. It's 13 hours, 13 and a half hours long. Uh, and they're breaking it up over several days um, and only doing one day where they're actually showing the entire 13-hour film. And uh, it's a fucking Thursday. And it's a Thursday, (laughs) which means some of us had to get babysitters and some of us had to put in vacation at our jobs. Kim's actually taking the day off of work. Is she really? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so I I took vacation to go to it. You and I are both attending, uh, and we're very excited about it. And... uh, People have heard us talk about Jacques Rivette before. Uh, Celine and Julie Go Boating is one of the best movies um, in the world. But So we're going to tie it in without one. We're going to talk about um, the pirate film that Jacques Rivette made, uh, which we think is pronounced Norwa. 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 Uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, and then the silent Douglas Fairbanks swashbuckler, the Black Pirate. Uh, that'll be our next show. And I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm looking forward to that show. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and then a couple days later, he, you and I will be watching uh, 13 hours of Jacques Rivette in a movie. Yeah, theater. it's like it's like a week later. I think it's on the 14th that we see at one. Right. And right. the next show we'll be recording on the 8th. So. Right. Yeah, uh, so enough. that's going to be pretty exciting. Um, and speaking of New Year, um, we always talk about how Hitchcock is always playing somewhere. And it's it's absolutely true. Um, but the New Year at the Castro Theater in San Francisco um, they're doing uh, a series called Double Hitch, where they're actually showing um, a 35 millimeter print of Vertigo um, for three days in a row. But then they're pairing it with a different movie each day. So on mm. uh, January 1st, they're showing a 35 millimeter print of The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, the uh, the remake version with Doris Day and James Stewart. Um, and then the second, they're showing The Wrong Man. Uh, but the real, the heavy hitter, my friend. Double feature, Sunday, January 3rd, Vertigo and Marnie. Mm. That is a messed up time at the movies. That's good stuff. Yeah. That'd be nice. Uh, uh, Coming up at the Grand Illusion is a film we just talked about a couple weeks ago on uh, January 8th and 9th at a special discounted price. They are playing Turkish Star Wars. (laughs) Yeah. Dear God. So you can go see it. Yes, you can. And uh, yeah. Wow. It's a movie. That's a movie. Wow. Uh, that's that's pretty amazing. Uh, you got to give kudos to the Grand Illusion for doing crazy stuff like that. So, um, so uh, once again, as always, you can find out more about the show uh, at show.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter at Geo Sanders Show, and we have an email, which is the George Sanders Show at gmail.com. Uh, and to close out the show this week, one more track from 1965. Uh, this one may be familiar to people that are fans of the Coen Brothers film Burn After Reading. Uh, this played during the closing credits. 
there are a lot of there's a lot of swear words going on in this song. Uh, this is uh, by the Fugs, uh, which is in and of itself a kind of a a swear word, uh, and it's the classic track CIA Man. A general in his bed Overthrow dictators if they're red Fucking A-man CIA man Who can buy a government so cheap Change a cabinet without a squeak Fucking A-man CIA man who can train gorillas by the dozens? Send them out to kill their untrained cousins. Fucking A-man. CIA man. Who can get a budget that's so great? Who will be the 51st state? Who has got the secret of service? The one that makes the other service nervous. Fucking amen. CIA man. Who can take the sugar from a sack? Pour in LSD and put it back. Fucking A-Man. CIA man. Who can mind the harbors, Nicaragua? Out hit all the hitmen of Chicago. Fucking A-Man. CIA man. Who can be so overtly covert? Sometimes even covertly overt. Fucking amen. CIA man. Who's the agency well known to God? The one that cut the staff and cut the rod. Fucking amen. CIA Hey.